Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you You'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Our recommendations today contribute to a coordinated, fair, and sustainable exit and recovery. And I think this is a moment of truth for this economy that should work for people. Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard Nicolas Schmidt, the European Commissioner for Jobs and Social Rights, as the Commission set out its recommendations to EU governments this week for getting Europe's economy out of the crisis. But the big move on that front came from Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron, with their surprise proposal for a €500 billion Euro recovery fund. For many people, that was a historic moment, and that's what we're going to focus on in this episode. Later, we'll get analysis from an expert economist. But first, let's bring together views from Brussels, Berlin and Paris by welcoming Politico's own Matt Karnichnik and Reem Montaz. Hi Reem, hot foot from a, a briefing at the Elysee Palace, right? Yes, indeed, and it feels so good to be outside again. <laughs> there we go, these small things that we've learned to appreciate. And uh, Matt, in Berlin, how's it going? Uh, great. It's another sunny spring day in Berlin, and it does really feel like things have pretty much gone back to normal here. Although there are fewer people mm-hmm. on the streets, which is uh, which is also nice. Okay, there you go. It's win-win for I you. Can't complain. Um, so let's dive into the big topic of the the week. Uh, I have this um, historic document. I think we could say in front of me now. I've got the French version of the. Um, of the plan announced by Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron uh, on Monday, uh, something that came, you know, pretty much out of the blue. They did a pretty good job of keeping it under wraps. Um, you know, the headline figure was the 500 billion euro recovery fund, and uh, the idea that that would be raised by uh, EU debt, and the money would then be given pretty much in grants to countries, regions, and sectors most affected by the coronavirus. I mean, Matt, how you've followed the you know the trials and tribulations of the eurozone for a long time. Uh, how big a deal was this? Well, I think if it actually goes through, which is still a question, to be honest. But if it does, it would be a major deal because this would be a real step, a major step towards a fiscal union, which is something that economists have been saying Europe needs for quite a long time, and so it really is something that. You know, Germany has resisted doing forever, essentially. And now because of the crisis, 
They're finally backing down and saying, okay, we are willing to go forward with this limited concept of debt mutualization, if you will. And, um, you know, I, I think for people who are concerned about the future of the euro and the stability of the euro over the long term, um, this is very good news, even though this applies to the entire European Union and not just to the eurozone. It, it is something that I think that uh, will have impact, you know, much more broadly than than just this crisis. Yeah. And Reem, as I say, you've just been at the Elysee again. You were also there on on Monday when the announcement was made. You know, how are the French feeling about this? How, how big a deal do they feel it is? You know, it's it's a major moment, and and Emmanuel Macron said so himself. Uh, it's a, it's a very big deal what they were able to to get, and more importantly, at least that's the way the French are talking about it. It's a big deal that they were able to the fr- France and Germany to collaborate so much and cooperate so much and make such a compromise. Um, and they readily admit that Germany really did make uh, a, a very big move uh, on their part and. And they recognize that it is, you know, Chancellor Angela Merkel uh, sort of recognizing that this is a watershed moment for the EU, that it needs to not repeat the mistakes of 2008, 2012, but also that a lot is writing in terms of the survival of the EU. Mm. And and Reem, as you were saying, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, uh, stressed that this is a Franco-German deal. It's not a deal that applies right now to the whole of Europe. It's a Franco-German proposal. I think we can hear him uh, making that point. Un accord entre l'Allemagne et la France ne veut pas dire un accord des 27. Et et d'ailleurs, ça n'est pas notre rôle. Parce que nous sommes respectivement chancelière d'Allemagne et président de la République française. But that does beg the question, how do they get everybody else on board? So the the kind of choreography here is they've come out a week ahead of the European Commission making its proposal for a recovery fund or a recovery instrument, which they've taken to calling it. And it would be part of a broader new proposal for the next long term EU budget. Um, Any indication from, from French officials as to what they've been doing up until now to try and get others on board and and how they might you know win over the the skeptics at this stage the French, at least officials that I've been talking to, have been very adamant uh, to explain since Monday uh, just their approach and how they got to this initiative and that it wasn't uh, France and Germany going into a corner in the dead of darkness and, you know, sorting this out among themselves like mom and dad might do and then imposing it on the children. That is not at all, uh, you know, the way it is being presented. Uh, and we've seen not just from the French, you know, we've heard all also from, for example, Dutch officials uh, confirming uh, what the French have been saying, which is that both Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron spent a lot of time talking to their various partners, uh, various uh, other leaders in the EU uh, in order to make sure that no one is blindsided or at least as many people as possible are not blindsided when the initiative was announced, while, of course, also retaining an element of surprise. Uh, and, you know, as you know, on Monday, barely anyone really could tell us ahead of time what was 
was going to be unveiled, and that was on purpose, uh, as I've I've been told by French uh, officials, because both Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron wanted this to be kind of a moment to focus all the attention and basically say France and Germany, this is how they define kind of the terms of the debate, and let's see how far we can get this going. Matt, how do you think you know the the holdouts at the moment or the the leading skeptics? Um, Austria has taken a lead among the the frugals. You know your beloved country. I think you're you're one of its most famous sons. Apparently, I believe, according apparently, to yeah, apparently. magazine cover from a couple of years ago. Um, so you know, how do you read the the Austrians kind of um, you know leading the charge here? And do you think um, you know there's some kind of the contours of some kind of compromise in sight? I, I suspect so. I think everyone has a role to play in in this uh, kind of choreography here. And you have to wonder if there isn't some sort of tacit understanding amongst the key players that the Austrians are going to lead the frugal group and they will play a role that the Germans are quite happy for them to play to deflect a bit of attention from Germany itself had it taken this position of you know, more skepticism towards uh, grants. The issue here is that this $500 billion is um, e- extraordinarily uh, simple in the way that this proposal has been structured because countries will be able to get direct grants from the commission. They won't have to pay the money back, in other words. The Austrians are saying, well, no, most of that money, if not all of it, should be in the form of loans. We do not want to have this mutualization of debt, which any way you cut it, it is ultimately. This has been, by the way, the position of the the Germans, uh, at least the conservative Germans, going back uh, at least a decade, if not more. So there has been an important change of heart here on the part of Germany. And I think if you ask yourself, as I've done today for a story that I'm doing on this subject, you know, why are they why are they changing their position now? What is different between now and 2011? And I, I think you have to come to the conclusion that it is the the business impact that we're seeing here. That uh, during the euro crisis, you were talking about countries like Greece or Portugal that actually had very limited. Uh, economic ties to Germany, meaning that whether they went overboard or not didn't really matter to the German economy. When you're talking about Italy in particular here, that's a completely different story. Uh, The German economy is extremely connected to the Italian economy. It's the fifth largest trading partner, Um, you know, not to mention the impact that an Italian, you know, default or something like that would have on the Eurozone. It would probably cause the Eurozone to collapse. So I think that German industry uh, has been very concerned about what is happening here, and they've also been urging, publicly urging, the the government to uh, be more proactive here. And I think this is also why you're seeing people within the CDU who had previously, you know, been uh, opposed to this type of thing, coming out in in support of it. I think we'll hear a bit more of that in an interview that uh, you've done for the the second part of the of the podcast. So just looking at this from the Brussels perspective, it's certainly interesting to see how uh, quiet Mark Rutte has been. Um, you know, he and Emmanuel Macron are from the same political family, at least on paper. They're part of this Renew Europe alliance, kind of centrist uh, liberal alliance, uh, but they have not been on the same side when it comes to a lot of these um, budgetary and financial. Uh, 
questions within the EU. Um, they kind of fought like cats and dogs over the Eurozone budget, if people remember that. Feels like pretty small beer now, but was a big deal at the time. And they were very much on, on opposite sides there. Um, the Dutch were very outspoken against the whole Corona bonds idea when it was first floated at the beginning of this crisis and took a lot of flack for that. And I think even some of the, the Dutch politicians who relish being the uh, the plain speaking ones um, realised that may have been counterproductive. It just produced such a, a backlash um, from Southern European countries in particular. But this time around, they're very much holding their fire um, uh, French officials made a point of saying that Ruta had been clued in on all of this and it seems like they're very much holding their fire. They'll wait for the commission proposal next week and it's just the tone of the debate. It's quite interesting how much calmer it is than compared to that European Council uh, video conference when things got very heated in the sense that even those who are coming out and opposing openly, such as the Austrians, are not doing it in the same such a um, combative terms as you know, as we heard uh, a couple of months ago. So I think um, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it does feel like this has been very well planned across the board. And if you look at the tweet that uh, Sebastian Kurz sent out on Monday after the plan was announced, uh, he was very, very quick to his iPhone. And the tweet was even in English, which made me wonder if this wasn't all part of a set piece. You know, there are two points. Uh, one, a French official today told me that, you know, on the whole Ruta being silent and kind of waiting and holding his fire, uh, keep in mind that Ruta sees himself as a leader in Europe. He doesn't necessarily want to be seen as Mr. No all the time. And perhaps Kurz has a different perspective, which is he doesn't mind being sort of the the, the tough guy, the bad cop. But I'm really struck by, you know, uh, the way Macron has been putting it, which is that it's, you know, he said, and I quote him, it's a real change in philosophy when he's talking about, you know, transfers and um, how this is a profound transformation but it's what the European Union and the single market need in order to stay coherent. So they have made it. And as you've heard us talk about on this on this podcast for the past two months, for Macron, the coronavirus response uh, on the EU level is absolutely existential in his point of view uh, for the EU and at least from the French perspective and what French officials have been saying is that, you know, perhaps Merkel also realized that a lot was writing on this and that in a way, perhaps the judgment by the, and I'm going to butcher this word, so excuse me, all German speaking people, the Karlsruhe, exactly, constitutional court ruling uh, may have actually encouraged uh, Merkel to take this unprecedented step and actually show in concrete terms that Germany is very much committed to the cohesion of the EU and not at all trying to undermine it. Mm. Well, I'll give you the uh, the Scottish Hochdeutsch version, <laughs> Bundesverfassungsgericht. I think that's right. I think this was certainly a factor, but the larger issue at play here might be that Merkel is also thinking about her own legacy. And with just a, a year left in, in her current term and what she so far said would be her last term, she might have seen, you know, this idea of creating this fund and sort of stepping over this Rubicon as as a way to uh, give herself a somewhat more substantial European legacy than I think uh, historians would have otherwise 
given her, but you know, we'll see. I mean, I, this could also be a first step towards Merkel deciding that she's going to uh, stick around for a bit longer because she said that this should only be the, the first step towards bigger things. Right. I was going to play in a little clip here, actually, of of, of Merkel, where she talks about uh, this being, if you like, the short answer to to this crisis uh, and, you know, to the challenges Europe is facing. Heute präsentieren wir sozusagen die kurze Antwort auf die Krise. Lange Antworten werden diskutiert werden müssen, denn Europa muss weiterentwickelt werden. So she basically says, this plan is the short answer, but we're going to need a longer term answer as well. And she specifically mentioned uh, something that felt like an idea looking for a purpose, um, which is the Conference on the Future of Europe. Wir werden darüber hinaus die Zukunftskonferenz der Mitgliedstaaten der Europäischen Union zusammen Which is something that Emmanuel Macron pushed a while ago, was kind of reluctantly embraced, I think, by a lot of people here in Brussels but suddenly now um, does find that it could have a purpose. And Angela Merkel, you know, was talking about it now having to be revamped and rethought as a way to kind of, you know, reimagine Europe. She was talking about treaty change. This is not normally the kind of cautious talk you get. So I guess the question is, what do we think may be coming further down the line here? And do we have any hints from from Paris and Berlin as, as to what they see as the kind of further steps here? We do have an excerpt from Macron in which, you know, he says very bluntly, we own up to the transfers because, you know, this key that uh, Matt was talking about is not going to be, he says, a, a national key where each uh, country looks to get back exactly what it puts into the pot and that this is a real change in philosophy. Et on assume les transferts parce que, de fait, la clé de répartition ne sera pas une clé nationale où chacun regarde le juste retour, ce qui est aussi un vrai changement de philosophie. Mais où And to me, you know, that sounds like getting closer to what he's always said, by the way, very publicly since the, his, his famous Sorbonne speech, which is that he wants to go toward uh, a, a more, at least integrated uh, European Union uh, in order for the EU to actually be able to pull its weight as a real power uh, on the international scene. I mean, if you... If you compare the way the U.S. is just, you know, pumping money as much as possible into its economy in order for things to keep going and China is doing the same, why can't the EU do the same? Well, there's another question whether this amount is big enough. I mean, ultimately, compared to the amount of damage that we're looking at to the European economy, it's not a huge amount of money. I, I think you could end up in a situation where this turns out not to be enough and then they end up coming back and then maybe it becomes, you know, more more politically challenging. But this could also lead to a place where you're forcing these issues that I think Merkel was hinting at about more integration where you're at some stage going to have to have this what some people are calling Hamiltonian moments in Europe where you end up giving the EU tax raising powers um, and, you know, perhaps more formalized uh, debt issuance um, responsibility than it has than it has now. But we're a long way from there. And I, I think that will remain extremely contentious uh, amongst the frugals and in, in Germany as well. Right. Well, this is just to say the Hamiltonian moment, a, re a reference to Alexander Hamilton, right? And um, the right. early days of, of the US, which does beg the ultimate question, is this all going to be made into a musical one day? Alexander Hamilton. You know, we will wait to see. Uh, great. Well, um, I think we've, we've covered it and we'll hear more um, in, the, um, in the interview that Matt's prepared. So Matt Reem for now, thanks very much. Thank you. 
And now, as we mentioned earlier this week, Matt spoke with Lucas Gutenberg, an expert on this very subject. He's a former European Central Bank economist who's now Deputy Director of the Jacques Delors Centre, a think tank at the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. The two of them caught up over a socially distanced coffee in a Berlin cafe. What was your uh, initial reaction and, and take on the plan itself? Were you surprised by it? Does it go far enough? And if not, what else do you think needs to be done? I was surprised by the timing. There was no, were no leaks. There was no like pre-announcements. But on substance, I think from a German perspective, it's a fairly logical decision to go there. Um, if you consider that for the German economy, the single market is actually a very, very important feature of the EU. And um, if we have would have more divergence in the single market um, through this crisis, it wouldn't absolutely be in the German interest. It, so from a German perspective, you need countries like Italy, like Spain, to spend more in this crisis than they can afford. You also, from a German perspective, have no interest in a new Euro, Euro crisis a year from now, especially also with the German elections looming in 2021. So also you don't want these countries to go into a higher debt than they can afford. And also you don't want to have massively higher budget contributions from Germany already this year. And that leads you to pretty logically to the, the proposals that, that they have made now, which means higher spending in these countries financed by EU debt. Substantively, this isn't really different than what people have been proposing for quite a long time, yourself included. What do you think it was that convinced Merkel in particular to embrace this plan this time? Because you know the, the arguments have been out there, and one of the interesting aspects I think that we've seen over the last couple of days is that now you have CDU people out there sort of arguing that, you know, well, this is their European duty and, you know, of course they would support this. And, you know, they seem to be suffering a bit of amnesia over the positions that they had taken on, you know, this very issue for the past, uh, you know, 10 years, I would say. One important difference to the euro crisis 10 years ago is that it has a completely different effect on the German economy. Greece, in the in essence, was a financial stability issue, and for the the German economy, what was important was that the euro would stick together. But this time, having like a widespread failure of, for example, firms in Italy that are closely linked to car makers in southern Germany would be a whole a whole different ballgame. And um, you saw already in the last weeks massive pressure from the German Industry Federation, from individual companies like Porsche. Um, for the German government to move. And I think that made this crisis very different to the last one. And that also convinced, presumably, um, the German government to take a different approach now and to finally understand that a single market is in the German interest and that you cannot have a single market with massive divergence in it and that there's a price to pay in a way for open, uh, for free flow of goods. I think there's a, a you know, big question that a lot of people have in their minds, though, when they look at this, and it's the question of, are we talking about euro bonds here? Because, you know, this is not a term that either Macron or Merkel was willing to use on Monday, but it sure looks like uh, euro bonds from where I'm sitting. If we now look at the proposal that France and Germany have made, it is about common spending, and common spending has common rules. Um, and I think there, was, there will be a fierce fight over what these common rules will look like, and under what conditions the money can be spent. But it's a completely different thing than to say we issue bonds jointly and then 
Italy or Spain can just spend it as they want to. Um, and I think one big fear that people in Berlin always had that um, creditors would always turn to the strongest link in the chain, which presumably was Germany, uh, to collect their debt. And I think that also is excluded in this in this construction. So it's a subtle difference, but it's an important one. Even if Germany doesn't have a legal obligation to pay it back, do you think it's realistic to assume that Germany would allow the EU itself to default in that kind of a situation? Or would they step into the breach and say, okay, we're going to we're going to pick up the tab for these other countries. I think it's important to to really dig a bit deeper into what this this construction means. It means that the EU budget pays for the debt that the EU incurs. And I can I find it hard to assume a situation where Spain and Italy would effectively not pay into the EU budget anymore because that would mean default in this situation. Um, and at the same time would still receive money out of the EU budget. But do you think this is the first step towards a, a real fiscal union? I mean, I guess the interesting point about this proposal is that we now have a shared legal understanding between France and Germany that this kind of instrument is possible. So now it really boils down to what is politically feasible and where is political will to implement these kind of instruments. And I think that's an important step. And I think there will be an important debate to be had after this crisis about like what kind of instrument we want to have in the long run. And I think it would be naive to think we will we would just take this instrument that we build now and will extend it like into the future forever. I don't think that that will happen politically. But as with the ESM at the time, it's important to know that this kind of instrument can potentially be used. And then it's a question of political bargain. What kind of instrument do we put permanently in place? And I think that that jury is still out. Do, do you think that the, the five hundred billion though will be enough? to uh, fulfill the intended purpose, given the, the depth of the economic decline that we've seen, particularly in Italy? A lot of it will depend on how the money will be spent exactly. If we get back into the usual EU budget gestrature logic, where every country, no matter how hard hit by the, the crisis, gets their share, then I think it will be difficult to get the macroeconomic momentum from that sum that is required. If it really gets spent where it has to be spent, namely in the countries, in the regions, in the sectors that are mostly mostly hit, and this is what the proposal says for now, then I think it can go a long way in, in helping these countries, these regions, weather the, the storm that comes from this crisis. And of course, it's not a full fiscal union where you have um, like dozens of points of GDP to be spent, but it's a really good start. And I think if we had th thought about this like eight weeks ago, it would have seemed completely impossible to get to like a three-digit billion number in EU borrowing for actual spending. So I think it's an enormous step if it ever like becomes law. Speaking of the law, I'd like to come back to the decision by Germany's constitutional court from a couple of weeks ago, now the Bundesverfassungsgericht, which has had a lot of impact, I think, on both the... ECB debate in Europe and on the debate over the, the rule of law, I would like to stick to the ECB aspect and, and use your expertise as a, as a former ECB economist here. One of the interesting things about the ruling was that the, the judges effectively told the ECB that they did not have carte blanche 
in combating the various crises that they've been confronted with over the past several years, that they were not, in the words of one of the judges, masters of the universe, which I thought was a, an interesting uh, term that it goes back to a book by Tom Wolfe, uh, Bonfire of the Vanities, which if you haven't read it, you should, about Wall Street in the 1980s. So they clearly had this idea in their mind that the ECB was almost out of control and that they needed to do something to rein it in. But what do you think the impact will be on the ECB as an institution from this ruling? Legally, I think for the ECB, it's clear they can could just ignore the ruling. It's not concerning them. Not not concerning them because the Bundesverfassungsgericht in Germany doesn't have direct jurisdiction over the ECB itself as a European institution, but it does have jurisdiction over the Bundesbank and can order the Bundesbank to not participate in the bond-buying activities. Exactly, and this is where the institutional consequence of this ruling comes from. I think there there is an inbuilt problem in the euro system, um, so the system that brings together the ECB and the national central banks, which is that national central banks, in this case the Bundesbank, are in a way in between two worlds. They are bound by ECB decisions, but they are also national authorities, and so they are in a way in this like legal limbo where it's not completely clear where the loyalty lies. This loyalty has never been put to the test and I think that's a good thing it's like this kind of ambiguity that in a way is in a lot of European arrangements but now it could lead to a situation where the Bundesbank if the ECB were just to ignore ignore this this ruling where the Bundesbank would find itself in a really tight spot where it would have to choose between its loyalty to the euro system or its loyalty to the German constitution and I think that's a very dangerous situation to be in institutionally because it's really hard to resolve that, that situation and I think there's a second more political problem for the ECB itself as an institution, which is that it had already a hard standing in the German public before that ruling. And having now permanently the label of um, unconstitutional on one of its main purchasing programs is something that legally you can afford, but politically you cannot. And I think that is also why, from an ECB point of view, I think it would be wise to go for a pragmatic solution and to find a way to get a proportionality assessment in some way out there, maybe by the Bundesbank, so that the criteria of this judgment um, that the, co- the court has asked for is fulfilled and the, uh, the ECB does not permanently have this stain of uh, having an unconstitutional program in Germany. So uh, just to, to, to close things off, if you look at, at these measures that have been taken in Europe over the past month or so, how confident are you that this will be enough to help the European economy recover, number one, but uh, more important in the long term, uh, keep, keep the euro uh, intact? So, I mean, the good thing that we've seen now, um, and it has taken some time, um, but is that we see a repetition of the euro crisis in the sense that in the end, it seems that leaders are mustering the political will to get solutions on the table that really change the course of the eurozone in this case to really be ready to have some common fiscal policy um, that's a very good sign and that that was not a given and i think it's also important to sometimes appreciate how far we've come in the last eight weeks basically including like no conditionality on the sm including this proposal now on the recovery fund including this uh, sure program of the commission that we barely even speak about but that was unthinkable weeks ago so 
I think we have to have a discussion after this what features of these measures have to be made permanent and how we get into a situation that not in every crisis we have to recreate instruments and recreate governance mechanisms at very short notice that we could have in a much more orderly and much more permanent fashion. But I think the way to go there is already is still very, very far. Well, on that optimistic note, we'll end things. Lucas, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks a lot for having me. That was Lucas Gutenberg from the Jacques Delors Centre. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Please also rate us by clicking some stars. And to the listener who knocked a star off because they thought we talked too much about the UK, we do appreciate the feedback. We try hard to get the balance right. And we hope you appreciated this all-EU episode. You can always send us feedback directly to, by the way. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. We'll be back on Monday with another Coronavirus Extra edition. In the meantime, thanks to our producer, Christina Gonzalez, and thanks to you for listening. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 